Um, you know, this morning I woke up and Pastor Matt was on my mind because um, he's going for surgery on his liver Tuesday. And um, I, just, I just feel like we as a church need to take just a few minutes and just lift him up in prayer, okay? And so I, I need your help with that. Um, I want everybody to just take a few minutes, focus on Pastor Matt, lift him up in prayer. It'll just take a couple minutes quietly. If you feel God leading you just to pray out loud, do that, okay? And then after a couple minutes, I'll, I'll close, and then um, we'll look at God's word. But he's just really on my heart today. So let's pray. Oh, great God, you are good. Uh, you are very good to us. Uh, and I just, I want to lift up Pastor Matt to you today, Lord. We all lift him up to you today. That as he faces another surgery for the cancer, uh, this time on his liver, Lord, I just, I lift him into your hands. I pray uh, for healing. I pray for uh, the doctor's hands, that they would be skillful, Lord, um, to remove that, that from his liver. Uh, I pray for the recovery time, Lord, that you would give him strength um, for his body to heal. I just lift him into your hands, Lord. Ultimately, Lord, I ask for a complete healing, that you would remove all the cancer from his body. You are good, Lord. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 2, a very familiar passage. Um, continuing in the, the book of Luke with, with Pastor Matt and today with me. And this passage is very familiar to us, but normally we, we read this and we talk about it around Christmas time, because it tells us of Jesus' birth. I found it very refreshing uh, to study this passage uh, in July and the, the first part of August here, when I wasn't focused on all the Christmas chaos. And we're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus, but it's interesting that nobody n really knows when it happened. I found that very interesting. Our methods of dating split time period into two sections, B.C. and A.D. Um, B.C. for before Christ, and A.D. for Latin, Anno Domini, or Domini, for the year of our Lord. But 
we don't know when Jesus was actually born. It probably wasn't December 25th, as I discovered that around the 4th century AD, the bishop in Jerusalem wrote to the bishop in Rome asking him to clarify when the birth of Jesus happened. Now, the bishop of Rome, he chose December 25th. His reason was that for centuries, there had been pagan festivals celebrating the Roman god Saturn, um, and it took place around December 25th. It was called Saturnalia. The bishop, his idea was to bring a sanctifying influence into these pagan festivals. He thought that if people could focus on Christ during this time, and not all the partying and other activities that went along, that uh, it may change the people's behavior. It was a nice thought. It didn't work. It didn't have the result that he wanted. And over the centuries, um, different cultures have added different things into the Christmas season. Even today, the world is more concerned with the gifts, the parties, the traditions of the holiday, and not so much about Christ. Well, let's take a look in Luke about the birth of Jesus. If you have your Bible, or if you want to use one in the pew in front of you, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. But I'm going to start with just the first seven verses. We'll get an idea of what's going on around the birth of Jesus. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke starts off um, helping us understand when this event happened. But he wasn't very specific. Sometimes he's very detailed about when something happened. And sometimes he's more general. For example, if you look over at chapter 3, verse 1, he's very specific. He says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and Traconius and Licinius, tetrarchs of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, 
son of Zechariah, in the desert. We can pinpoint when that happened. I mean, that's a lot of details that Luke gives us. But in chapter 2, he only says, in those days. In what days? Well, for that, we go back to chapter 1, verse 5. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Okay? So, Jesus' birth happened in the days when Herod was king of Judea. And we know that Herod was king in Judea from 47 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, some of you might be thinking um, that we have a little discrepancy with our dates. Uh, If B.C. refers to before Christ, uh, then how could Jesus be born um, during the time of Herod if Herod died before Christ? Well, that's got to do with some calendars, and it, I really don't want to go into it because it's a lot of boring stuff, but it, Julius Caesar had a calendar, and then uh, Gregory decided to change that calendar because he found out that Caesar's calendar was 11 days off, and so, it, it, yeah, it's interesting if you like that kind of stuff, but today we'll just say, yeah, Jesus was born before Herod died. Uh, Luke does narrow it down a little bit. He says it happened when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. And that census was the first census that happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we're getting a little bit closer to figuring out exactly when it happened. Caesar Augustus, it's not his name, it's his title. Caesar, meaning king, and Augustus, meaning meaning highly honored, His actual name was Gaius Octavius. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was very fond of Gaius um, and eventually adopted him as his own son. And then we know from our history lessons that Caesar was killed. um, And so Gaius, along with Mark Antony and another man, um, took took over ruling Rome. But um, the the other gentleman, I I don't remember his name because he didn't rule very long. Gaius got rid of him. Um, So it was Gaius and Mark Antony who ruled for quite some time. But then Mark Antony, if you know from your history, he got kind of uh, hooked up with a a lady in Egypt named Cleopatra. And uh, he and he started thinking more about Egypt than he did about Rome. And so Gaius didn't like that, and there was a war. Cleopatra and Mark Antony lost that war and ended up committing suicide. And so now leaves Gaius in charge of the entire Roman world. He's the uh, Roman emperor who uh, is responsible for what is known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. He's the one who built the Roman roads, and he helped, which helped uh, the trades. And he's also the one who allowed the nations that he conquered to have a little bit of autonomy. And that's why Herod was allowed to be king. And Gaius <clears throat> instituted a census system 
And that census system took place every 14 years. And from archaeological evidence, we know that one of those census took place in 6 AD, which resulted in a revolt by the Jewish people, which was stopped by Cornelius, who was governor of Syria at that time. So in 6, B, 6 AD, there was a census, but it can't be this census because Herod, king, died in 4 BC. So the 6 AD and the 4, they don't fit. So count back 14 years, because we knew they took place every 14 years, and you get 8 BC. For the time of the census, the first census, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And we know from the Magi in Matthew that uh, gives us a time for Christ's birth that happened because Herod, when the Magi left and went, didn't go back to him, uh, he kills all the boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. So 4 B.C., count back um, two years, you got six. So 6 B.C., that's as close as we can get to the time when Christ was born. So if, well, during the time that Rome was occupying Judea, the Jews and Herod did not like the Romans. And these censuses that were taken were for the purpose of taxation. And you learn from the, from the New Testament that the, the Jews did not like the tax collectors. In fact, if you wanted to insult somebody in that day, you called them a tax collector. That was horrible. You didn't want to be attacked. You didn't want to work for the Romans. The Jews hated being taxed. But who was really in control of these events? God. God was ultimately the one orchestrating all the events. Because 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Find that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so God uses a pagan ruler to issue a decree for a census to get Joseph and Mary from Galilee, and from Nazareth in Galilee, 85 to 90 miles away, to Bethlehem, so that Micah's prophecy would be fulfilled. Isn't that awesome how God works? All these events take place so that he could fulfill a prophecy. He got them to Bethlehem. And they'd only be in Bethlehem for a few days. They went there, they registered for the census, and then they left. Maybe five, five six days at the most. They'd be in Bethlehem. And so Mary would have to be, in the last months of her pregnancy... For her to give birth in Bethlehem and for all that to work out. So God was doing amazing things. Every single detail was in the hand of God. God is in control, folks. God is in control and he is good. 
One thing I find interesting, that when Luke actually describes the birth, he says he has very little to say. Just two verses. Verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's it. The time came, she had the baby, wrapped him in some clothes. The most incredible event in all of human history, and that's all that Luke can say, Luckily, God has more to say, and he sends his angel to make probably the greatest announcement in the history of humanity. Well, let's take a look at that announcement. Verse 8, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. I love it when angels show up. When angels show up, things happen. But have you ever noticed that every time in Scripture that an angel shows up, what's the first thing they say? Do not be afraid. What is it about an angel that scares people? Think of the images you've seen of angels. I think I can think of pictures of angels I've seen in books or on walls and things. They don't seem very scary to me, right? They, they seem a little dainty. I don't picture angels that way. When I imagine an angel, I see a warrior dressed in armor, carrying a sword and a shield. Someone you take a look at and think, yeah, I'm not messing with you. Maybe if you like took the Incredible Hulk and put wings on him. That's, that's the kind of image I get with an angel. One of my favorite passages that talk about an angel is, happens in chapter 1 of Luke. It's when Gabriel shows up to Zechariah. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, this is Gabriel, says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. I don't see a dainty angel saying, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to you. No, I hear it. When I read that, this is, I hear this. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you. And now you will be silent. 
That's how I read that. That's the angel I see, this massive warrior saying, I'm Gabriel. You don't believe me? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And Zacharias was like, okay, right. Things happen when angels show up. You ever scratch your head and wonder why God does things the way he does them? Because who does God decide to send his angel to? To announce the birth of the Son of God. The greatest announcement in the history of humanity. And he sends them to shepherds. Not kings, not rulers, not the religious leaders. The most incredible news the world has ever heard, and the first ones to hear it, are shepherds. Common, ordinary, hardworking people. If you had the greatest news, what do we do when we have great news, right? We get on Facebook or whatever and we share it with the world. If we were a press agent and we wanted to get this great news out of, who would we go to? Would we go to shepherds? Or would we go to the president or the news media? the uh, celebrities, the up-and-comers, the people who had influence. God doesn't do that. He sends an angel to shepherds. In that day, shepherds were low on the social ladder. Very, very low. Well, why would God come to shepherds? Isaiah chapter 61 tells us. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God came to everybody, from shepherds to kings. He came to the lowly, the unimportant. He came to the poor, and shepherds were among the poorest. And they're out in their fields near Bethlehem at night watching their flocks. In the night, at nighttime, shepherds would not have the sheep just out on the field roaming around. They would probably gather them in some kind of an enclosure uh, to keep them safe from the pre predators. And then the shepherd would lay down or sit down in, the in only, only one opening of that enclosure. He became the gate. He became the door. And so if the sheep wanted to get out, they had to climb over him. If the predators wanted to get in, get in they had to go through him. And so I can imagine there this shepherd sitting or laying down, trying to stay awake in the middle of the night, looking up at the stars, and then boom, this angel stands before him. The floodgates of God's glory, the light of God's glory shines around this poor shepherd. 
and he is terrified. He has good reason to be terrified. Well, what's the angel's message? The angel says, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the angel says that this is good news of great joy. Think about that for a minute. There has been born for you a Savior. For you. And you. And you. Do you think you need a Savior? Is this good news for you today? Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to seek and save the lost. Are you lost? Does sin have control over you? Are you looking for a savior? This is what the Jewish people had been waiting for. It's possible that these shepherds were raising sheep to be used in the temple sacrifices. They were looking for a Savior who would come and take away sin. They were looking for the new covenant to be fulfilled. The Savior who would come and forgive them of, the, of their sins. A Savior who would come and wash them. A Savior who would come and take away the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. A Savior who would come and give them His Spirit. A Savior who would rescue them from judgment the judgment of God and eternal hell. And it is possible that they had discussions with each other about when the Messiah would come. And then the angel shows up and he says, today, today's the day. The Savior's been born for you today. And the, the angel tells them how to find the Savior. He gives them a sign. And that sign is that they would find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Well, that's kind of a strange place to put a newborn baby in a feeding trough. You don't put newborn babies in dirty feeding troughs. But that's the sign that the shepherds would find so that they would know that this is the Savior. It'd be unmistakable. <clears throat> and then if that night wasn't crazy enough, the sky then is filled with angels, and they are all praising God. Well, what would you do if you were one of the shepherds? How would you respond? Well, let's see what they did. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard and seen which were just as they had been told. They talk it over amongst themselves, and they say, we've got to go to Bethlehem. 
we got to go see this thing. And so they go. They have to see this baby. They leave the sheep, and they go. Maybe they were talking and said, well, you got to stay and watch the sheep. No, I don't want to stay and watch the sheep. You stay and watch the sheep. Maybe there was a little bit of arguing about who's going to stay. Maybe they just said, you know what? Heck with the sheep. I'm going. I want to see this thing. And then they make a search through the town of Bethlehem. They probably think, well, okay, he says he's going to be in a manger, a feeding trough, so we're not going to find him in anybody's house. We're going to find him in the barn. Let's start looking in the barns. And they go through Bethlehem, and they're looking around, and then finally they find Mary and Joseph. And then they tell Mary and Joseph everything that happened to them that night, all about the angels and what they said. But they didn't stop with just Mary and Joseph. They probably told it to anybody and everybody they met that night. And then after they'd finished telling and retelling what had happened to them, they returned to their sheep, glorifying and praising God. The joy of the good news had so filled them that it expressed itself in praise. But the shepherds weren't the only ones to respond that night. Mary, too, had a response. There in verse 19, it says that Mary treasured all that had happened, and she pondered them in her heart. Think about it. Here she is, 14, 15 years old. She had just given birth, an event that's an incredible all in itself. But she had just given birth to the Son of God. And then she has a group of shepherds show up and tell her about an angel's announcement to them. And I can just picture her holding Jesus in her arms, looking at him, thinking of all that has been said about him. And maybe she's questioning, how is she and Joseph going to raise him? I mean, how do you raise the Son of God? Put yourself in her place. How would you respond? How are you going to respond to the Savior? Well, let me suggest two ways. Number one, if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, start here. Start today. Because there has been born for you a Savior. He came to save you from your sins. And it is truly good news. He came to save you. You. He came to save me. He came to offer us eternal life. If you've never decided to follow him, I would love to tell you how. Number two, if you've already made that decision to follow Christ, then take time each day to ponder all that God has done for you. And take time to tell others about what God has done for you, like the shepherds did. God is amazing how he works. Today in the daily bread, 
I read um, this, and it, it fits. In the early 1900s, the Packer Motor Compa Car Company generated a slogan to entice buyers. It was, ask the man who owns one. It became a powerful tagline, one that con contributed to the company's reputation as, a ma as manufacturing the dominant luxury vehicle in that era. What Packard seemed to understand is that personal testimony is compelling to the hearer. A friend's satisfaction with a product is a powerful endorsement. Sharing with others our personal experiences of God's goodness is also, make, also makes an impact. God invites us to declare our gratitude and joy not only to him, but also to those around us. Psalm 61. The psalmist eagerly shared his song of the forgiveness God granted him when he had turned from his sins. I encourage you to read Psalm 61. Tell people of the great things God has done for you. Allow that joy to fill you to the point that you overflow in praise of your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you that you came and died on a cross. That you came as a baby to save my sin, me from my sins. You came to the lowly, the poor, the brokenhearted, the outcast, all to save us from our sins. Lord, I ask that if someone is here who doesn't know you, that they would find me or find someone who could tell them how. And Lord, if for the rest of us who do know you, I pray that each day we would ponder the great things that you have done to us. But not just ponder them, Lord. Tell those that we come in contact with of the great things you have done for us. Because you are good. You are so very, very good. In Jesus' name, amen.